0: The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network, Buzz Burbank, news in comment. A rising tide against democracy and the planet. This is Thursday, October 4th, 2018. Thank you very much for your time and for supporting this independent news through the links for my sponsors and through the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. What should be our top story in the news is buried deep in a government report on climate change. The National Highway Traffic Safety Administration was instructed to write a report to justify Trump's decision to freeze federal fuel efficiency rules on cars and light trucks built after 2020. The study found that Trump's decision would increase the kind of pollution that causes climate change, but not by enough to make a difference in what's going to happen anyway. The study presumes the world will fail in its efforts to curtail greenhouse gases and that the planet's average temperature will rise 7 degrees by the end of the century, nearly double the 4 degrees that's already considered catastrophic. The oceans are projected to rise 3 feet by the year 2100. Parts of Manhattan and Miami would be underwater. The coral reefs would dissolve in oceans too acidic to allow for their survival. Heat waves would cover huge parts of the planet. Extreme heat waves. All of this by the end of the century. Done deal, according to this report. The report says that since global disaster is inevitable anyway, Trump's loosening of car pollution rules won't make much difference. Scientists disagree with that, but they've already admitted that although the Paris Climate Accord was a good start, it won't be enough to stave off the predicted inevitable. And whether it says so publicly or not, the Trump administration clearly believes in the reality of climate change and in mankind as a participant, if not the leading cause. An internal White House memo obtained by the Washington Post shows officials wondering if it might be best to just ignore the studies. The word ignore is a direct quote from that memo. For now, the world still has sunrises and butterflies and creativity and people we love who love us back. But these are also dark days for the institutions of American democracy, and darker still as the shadow of politics finally overtakes the United States Supreme Court. Brett Kavanaugh said it correctly at his first confirmation hearing that being a judge is being about the law, not politics. The Supreme Court, he said, must never be viewed as a partisan institution. But Brett Kavanaugh changed everything one week ago today when he exploded with emotions, indignation, and especially anger at Democrats Making it clear he is not an impartial judge. Kavanaugh even went off on the Clintons as if he hadn't already been partisan enough. Instead of a humble, calm, respectful, well-reasoned demeanor, as Supreme Court nominees usually are, Kavanaugh was defiant and anything but respectful. When a senator asked a pertinent question about blacking out when drunk, Kavanaugh snapped back, Have you? In his fiery testimony, Kavanaugh was now the guy Trump wanted him to be saying the things Trump wanted him to say. Quoting Trump after Kavanaugh's rant, Judge Kavanaugh showed America exactly why I nominated him. And with Kavanaugh as the tie-breaking vote on a bench otherwise occupied by a balance of liberals and conservatives, the United States Supreme Court itself would be politically partisan for decades to come, that it would rule for conservative policy, not law. Although there had always been politics, the Supreme Court became truly divided, truly partisan in 2010. By then, Republican presidents had pitted five conservatives against the mixture of independents and liberals appointed by Democratic presidents. And by 2010, the game was on, and Republicans, voters, and politicians set their sights on a solid conservative majority for the mostly previously untampered Supreme Court, a conservative majority that would set legal precedent for decades. By 2016, the very choosing of nominees had become so politicized, Senate Republicans refused to even meet with a moderate Obama nominee as they felt so close to being able to confirm one of their own. And in 2018, now that Republicans can nearly taste their long-coveted goal of that conservative Supreme Court majority, they weren't going to let anything get in the way. Not partisanship, not perjury, not allegations of attempted rape. Captivated in disbelief, millions and millions of Americans watched a woman bravely come forward with her allegations and kept watching as a judicial job applicant delivered jurisprudence without the prudence, exploding in an angry partisan attack. Chief Justice John Roberts saw this day coming and said so in a speech two years ago. In 2016, Chief Justice Roberts, a moderate conservative, was worried about how the public's view of the Supreme Court had changed. We don't work as Democrats or Republicans, he emphasized, adding, I think it's a very unfortunate impression the public might get from the confirmation process. In 2018, now that the public has witnessed this partisan push for a partisan high court nominee, the bell has been rung and there's no unringing it. Brett Kavanaugh, too, may be forever changed, more determined than ever to rule against progressive policies and in favor of conservative ones. Clarence Thomas came out of this process embittered. In his memoir, Thomas wrote, mere confirmation, even to the Supreme Court, seemed pitifully small compensation for what had been done to me. And then Thomas went on to become the most conservative justice on the court in modern history. Bitterly partisan Is the Brett Kavanaugh still etched in our minds from that hearing one week ago today? If confirmed, he joins the high court with a chip on his shoulder, just like Clarence Thomas. If Kavanaugh is confirmed, this will be the most partisan court in American history, and it will stay that way for quite a while. The Senate hearing last Thursday put us through a ringer of pain and emotion for nine hours. It was a raw exposure of tensions between men and women, between conservatives and liberals, and at the end of it all, no minds were changed, there were no winners, only losers. The hearing exposed a Senate that is as divided as the country it represents, and one willing to stoop to lower lows than those already achieved. Many choose to believe it was in an elevator— But Arizona Senator Jeff Flake decided to withhold his crucial yes vote on Kavanaugh until after a week-long investigation of the sexual assault allegations against the nominee. And maybe being confronted in that elevator by sex assault survivors did influence Flake's decision. Two women passionately explained to the senator they'd successfully trapped that his decision would be a message to all sex assault survivors, one way or the other. They made him stop and listen and look him in the eyes. But it may have also been the Republican senator's talks with his very good friend, Democrat Chris Coons of Delaware, that caused uh, that caused Flake to pull the emergency brake on Kavanaugh's confirmation. Before the hearing, Flake announced he'd vote yes on Kavanaugh. But the day's testimony from Dr. Christine Blasey Ford, that encounter at the elevator, and his chat with Senator Coons made Flake take a step back. He'd found immediate support from two other Republicans who were not on the committee, but whose votes would also be crucial when the Kavanaugh nomination comes up for a final vote on Saturday. Alaska's Lisa Murkowski and Maine's Susan Collins said they too would withhold their crucial yes votes without an investigation first. At the insistence of Democrats and a few Republicans, the FBI would once again be dragged to the center of a political fight. Republicans no longer had enough votes for Kavanaugh's confirmation, once considered a sure thing. They had no choice but to agree to a one-week delay for one more investigation of Brett Kavanaugh specifically about the allegations of his sexual abuse. No other choice when they're already this close to getting that long-term conservative Supreme Court majority. Republicans agreed to the supplemental investigation knowing the risks, including how all this would be remembered on Congressional Election Day, November 6th. If they win their gamble that Kavanaugh will be confirmed despite the delay or the new investigation, it'll be a week well spent for Republicans. But they also know confirmation means harsher defeats on Election Day in the House races where they are already trailing. But the Senate, they believe, is a different story. Republicans are betting that their fierce fight for the long-coveted conservative court and the Democrats' resistance to it will motivate Republican voters to help the party keep its majority hold on the Senate. Democratic senators in red states have now become high-priority targets for Republicans. Republican senators supporting Kavanaugh are rewarded with money and a Trump endorsement, and Republicans have little to lose at this point. Even they acknowledge they've lost control of the House at a host of governor's races. They know they've not only lost female support, but they now face energized female opposition, female opposition that wins elections. But Republicans also appear to believe that the loss is worth the cost if it means getting that conservative Supreme Court majority and maybe, just maybe, hanging on to the Senate. So they agreed to a limited investigation. Trump agreed to a limited investigation, and not just limited in time but limited in scope as well. Limited in what it could examine and what it could not. Quickly after the start of the investigation, the FBI had the cooperation of Judge Kavanaugh, Dr. Ford, and the key witness who didn't appear at last week's dramatic confirmation hearing, alleged assault eyewitness Mark Judge, Kavanaugh's college roommate. Soon after, the FBI spoke with a second accuser, Deborah Ramirez. The FBI will not, does not, has not reached any conclusions. It's just conducting interviews to be turned over to the White House, which has been done without any recommendations. And although the Bureau is likely to unearth new information, it won't crack the case. We may at least see the facts more clearly, since each of the people interviewed by the Bureau does so knowing that to lie could mean prison. FBI investigators are pros, and their questions will be more thoughtful than the ones bandied about in a politically charged Senate hearing room. The FBI also took a long, close look at Kavanaugh's calendar from the summer of 82, since it includes a party like the one described by Christine Blasey Ford at about that time that includes several of the same people as witnesses. The calendar also supports the suspicion that Kavanaugh lied under oath when he said he had no knowledge of the party described by Christine Blasey Ford, that he never attended such a gathering. This is the investigation that Christine Blasey Ford and Deborah Ramirez wanted, or at least it was supposed to be. It's the investigation Democrats and a few Republicans said they wanted. It's the investigation the American Bar Association had urged. This investigation could change votes or bring on another hearing, especially if Kavanaugh lied under oath to Congress, which could also lead to criminal charges. Someone had misrepresented the truth in sworn testimony before the Senate Judiciary Committee, and to find out who lied, the FBI would ask questions for which the answers are as serious as prison. Republicans had little choice but to go along with this investigation. Possible insurance for Trump? His two years of preaching about the evils of the FBI. And then CNN reported coordination between the White House and Senate Republicans in efforts to limit where the FBI could look, and to limit its interviews, and to even limit the time periods it could examine in ways that appeared to obstruct the investigation of some very specific allegations. And no questions about his drinking, even though Kavanaugh was reportedly drunk during the alleged assaults. That news led to a demand from the Judiciary Committee's ranking Democrat, Diane Feinstein, to make known the limits of the probe. Some said a White House-guided investigation would be a farce, especially since the FBI director, Chris Wray, is a former Yale alumnus like Kavanaugh, as is Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, who worked with Kavanaugh on the Ken Starr pursuit of Bill Clinton. True or not, Trump claimed the FBI had free reign amid reports the interviews had been limited to four or five people. The first two accusers, one witness on behalf of Dr. Ford and two witnesses for Brett Kavanaugh, including alleged assault eyewitness Mark Judge. In the end, the FBI spoke to neither Kavanaugh nor Dr. Ford. Experienced FBI prosecutors say never before has the FBI been told to whom it could speak and to whom it could not. Never before had the FBI, in one of these background checks, been told what to examine and what to ignore. Witnesses came forward to tell the FBI what they knew but got little or no response as confusion reigned at the FBI over what it could or could not do. By Monday afternoon came word the White House had authorized the FBI to follow all leads, the only limitation now being that one-week time limit which, while unwise, is normally enough time. But by Tuesday night, with word the FBI investigation might end that night or the following day, dozens of witnesses had still not been contacted by the Bureau, nor were they able to get in touch with the right people to say what they had to contribute. And now that the FBI investigation is over, those people have still been ignored. Some 40 witnesses ignored, now including another former college roommate of Kavanaugh's, James Roach, says Kavanaugh lied under oath about his drinking and about the meaning of yearbook entries that include the sex terms boof and devil's triangle. The lawyers for Dr. Ford were begging to be contacted because by Tuesday night they still hadn't heard from the FBI despite their own many attempts to get through and they never did hear from the FBI. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell repeated his vow to vote on Kavanaugh Friday without any further delay with a final vote on Saturday. Apparently regardless of the outcome of a suspicious investigation. In addition to Kavanaugh's ex-roommate Mark Judge, agents have spoken with Chad Ludington, a former drinking buddy of Kavanaugh's, who says the nominee has lied to Congress about his drinking. Ludington says he was deeply troubled by and cringed at Kavanaugh's testimony under oath. He described Kavanaugh as a frequent and heavy drinker who got belligerent and aggressive, and he called Kavanaugh's explanation a blatant mischaracterization. Ludington's description of a bar fight involving alcohol started by Kavanaugh is now supported by a 1985 police report from the New Haven, Connecticut Police Department. Brett has not told the truth, says Ludington. Ludington says Kavanaugh's drinking should not be an issue in a confirmation hearing 36 years after the fact, but that lying about it to Congress at the age of 53 is an issue. The drinking by Kavanaugh that Republicans wanted the FBI to stay away from returned in the public's eye as the center point of this investigation. Hoping to speak with the FBI was Elizabeth Razor, a former girlfriend of Kavanaugh Roomie Mark Judge. She never got to speak either. She wanted to substantiate the claims of gang rape that she says were allegedly at least witnessed by Mark Judge and by Kavanaugh. Now a New York public school teacher, Ms. Razor, came forward after she heard her ex-boyfriend Mark Judge tell what she says is a lie about Kavanaugh. She says Mark Judge confessed to her about the incident and expressed his shame at having been part of it. She says Mark is lying now when he says he doesn't remember the incident. Another former Yale student has come forward to support the claims of third accuser Deborah Ramirez, saying the account she's given already matches in detail the account she shared with him after that alleged incident all those years ago. The FBI also didn't look at what NBC News found, that Brett Kavanaugh was trying to quash the allegation of that third accuser, Deborah Ramirez, in July, months before the allegation was made public, which appears to mean Kavanaugh lied when he denied knowing about Ramirez's allegation until September 23rd. NBC News, which has led the reporting on this story, has seen emails from Kavanaugh recruiting friends to back up his claims of innocence. Kavanaugh's lawyers got involved in these texts, asking one female friend to go on record supporting Kavanaugh. One of the friends contacted by Kavanaugh and his legal team says she had given those texts to the Republican-controlled Senate Judiciary Committee, but the committee never turned them over to the FBI, so she did it herself. A spokesman for the committee chairman, Judd Grassley, says the committee finds the emails to be irrelevant, even though they appear to catch Kavanaugh in another lie about what he knew and when he knew it. Kavanaugh also appears to have lied when he denied knowledge of stolen Democratic emails, despite his own emails indicating he did know about the ones that had been stolen. And he appears to have lied under oath in 2006 about his role in the handling of Bush administration's judicial nominees when he was being confirmed for a federal judgeship before the Senate Judiciary Committee. The FBI turned over its report on Kavanaugh at 5.30 this morning, first to the White House, then to the Senate Judiciary Committee. It will eventually go to all 100 senators. Senators on the committee have just one day to go to the basement and look over the information the FBI has gathered in its six-day investigation. Chairman Grassley got the first look at eight this morning. Ranking Democrat Feinstein was ushered in at nine. Committee Republicans got their first peek at 10 a.m. The Democrats on the committee were brought in at 11. This afternoon, it goes to the rest of the Senate. It might be only a matter of hours before information from that investigation, and perhaps information about the investigation, is to be made public. But senators are not allowed to make copies. They are not allowed to remove any documents from that secured basement room in the Senate. Stay close to the news over the next 24 hours. It may not matter to Republicans what the FBI has found. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell's forging ahead, ignoring allegations he calls character assassination as Republicans stepped up their attacks on Dr. Christine Blasey Ford. Despite a thumbs down from both the American Bar Association, a a group of more than a thousand college law professors, including a dozen from Yale, Republicans are forging ahead with Brett Kavanaugh. The procedural vote on his nomination is set for tomorrow in the full Senate, the final vote on Saturday. Jeff Flake says that if the evidence supports the claims of Dr. Ford or If it shows that Kavanaugh lied under oath, then Kavanaugh is, in Flake's mind, disqualified to be a Supreme Court justice. And if Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins follow Flake's lead, as they did with the investigation, that's at least three no votes just on the Republican side. It was an oddly freewheeling 83-minute news conference that Trump explained why his instincts told him to side with powerful men who stand accused. You know why, asked Trump, because I've had a lot of false charges made against me. So when you say, does it affect me in my thinking with respect to Judge Kavanaugh? Absolutely. He mentioned four or five accusations. There are actually more than a dozen. It was the day before that dramatic, historic Senate hearing when Trump was still saying he'd be open to being swayed by the testimony of Dr. Ford. I could be convinced of anything, said Trump. Trump told reporters he had postponed his meeting with Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein until after Kavanaugh's confirmation process had ended. Trump reveled in the spotlight for nearly an hour and a half, saying, I could be doing this all day long. Should we continue for a little while? It doesn't matter to me. Hit me with a bad one, he shouted to one reporter. Although networks don't endorse candidates, Trump predicted the networks would endorse him in 2020. Because if they don't, predicted Trump, they're going out of business. Can you imagine if they didn't have me? Trump was clearly having a lot of fun for a long time in a room full of reporters and cameras. He mused he might get the opportunities to choose one or two more Supreme Court justices. I can have a lot of Supreme Court judges, said Trump, emphasizing more than two. As they often do after cases like that of Kavanaugh and Ford, the number of calls to sex abuse hotlines increased. But they have never spiked as high as they did during and after the testimony of Christine Blasey Ford. It was a record number of calls the day after Ford's brave public appearance before a Senate committee and a massive and captivated TV audience. On Friday, more than 3,000 people called the National Sexual Assault Hotline the highest number in its 24-year history. Thursday through Sunday, calls were up 338%. The numbers had spiked before, after Harvey Weinstein and after Bill Cosby. But quoting Hotline President Scott Berkowitz, we've never seen anything like this before. This week, we also learned something that wasn't clear before. The Wall Street Journal reports that Trump personally directed Michael Cohen to keep Stormy Daniels from going public back in February of this year. At the time, Daniels was poised to tell her story to 60 Minutes, and Trump wanted Cohen and Eric Trump to legally enforce the confidentiality agreement that Trump later admitted he'd never signed. Trump ultimately decided to release Daniels from that agreement that he had previously denied knowing anything about. And just when it seemed Trump could do nothing more to anger American women and fire up their intention to vote, he insulted another female reporter. When ABC's Cecilia Vega was called upon by Trump to ask a question, he told the crowd, she's shocked that I picked her. She's like in a state of shock. I'm not. Thank you, Mr. President, replied Vega. That's okay. I know you're not thinking. You never do, replied a president who had clearly misheard what had been said and perhaps had a preconceived notion or two. The White House was apparently so embarrassed by the exchange, its transcript reflected a much kinder response by Trump. It just wasn't true. Reporters pointed that out. The White House has now corrected the transcript. It now reflects exactly what he said. And even when that wasn't enough, Trump appeared at a campaign rally in Mississippi Tuesday night and mocked the testimony of Dr. Ford, attacking her failure to remember certain details of the night she says she was attacked by Brett Kavanaugh after calling her testimony very credible in remarks he'd made last week to the press. Trump was now surrounded by his people there in Mississippi, so he mocked Dr. Ford. The Trump crowd, some of them paid $12 an hour to be there, cheered and booed at all the right places for Trump. Lock her up, chanted the crowd about Hillary Clinton, still nearly two years after the election. And Trump attacked his imagined fake news media again. Like any good rock star at any good concert, he played all his biggest hits. Trump and the crowd egged each other on as Trump accused evil Democrats of shattering Brett Kavanaugh's life. And Trump used fear to motivate the crowd, saying it was a scary time to be a young man in America. The idea is to fire up the angry male voters who elected Trump in the first place to return to the polls a month from now to stop the predicted blue wave. This may turn out to be an election not just between conservatives and liberals, but between women and men. With his words this week, Trump fired up his base of angry white men and the Democratic base of angry women of all colors. But motivating his base was more important to Trump than the scoldings he got about his Dr. Ford remarks from Chuck Grassley and Lindsey Graham and quoting Orrin Hatch, I wish he would just shut up. Trump's remarks also earned the words appalling from Jeff Flake, just plain wrong from Susan Collins, and unacceptable from Lisa Murkowski. They are the three Republican senators who would cast the deciding votes on Brett Kavanaugh. In the words of our own Bob Seska, Trump always makes things worse for Trump. More words from Bob coming up. Knowing it may not hold up in court, California Governor Jerry Brown has signed into law a bill that requires the state's publicly traded companies to have at least one woman on their corporate boards. Brown says given the special privileges corporations have enjoyed for so long, it's high time corporate boards include the people who constitute more than half the persons in America. Brown says he signed the bill with its possible flaws because, quote, recent events in Washington, D.C. make it crystal clear that many are not getting the message. The emperor is naked again, migrant children still in tents, and America's kids got guns, plus Bob Seska after this. Thank you again for using my Amazon link at buzzburbank.com, no matter what you buy there. For myself, I keep discovering the expanding world of Amazon Prime Music in addition to all the other perks. And if you shop the new Amazon business, which is free, you can manage your office supplies with the greatest of ease. I got a small commission from Amazon for that and every purchase you make. So it really helps power this free weekly report. If you'd rather not use my Amazon link, please then support this free independent journalism through the PayPal donate button that's just beneath the Amazon button at buzzburbank.com. And thanks again. Salon.com's Bob Seska believes a person is innocent until proven
1: guilty, but he believes that principle works
0: both ways.
1: Thank you, Buzz. The Gaslighting of America by Donald Trump and his moronic fanboys continues to worsen. I didn't think it was possible for it to get suckier with time, but here we are. To briefly recap, gaslighting is a psychological trick exploited by villains that makes us feel like we're losing our blessed minds. Usually Trump or Trump adjacent a holes borrow one of our criticisms about the president and then they project a bastardized version of that criticism back onto one of their perceived enemies. For example, earlier on Wednesday, Donald Trump Jr accused actor and activist Alyssa Milano of being entitled, even though there isn't a man on this continent who's more entitled than Jr other than perhaps the president himself. The consequence of this line from someone like Junior is that the Red Hats repeat it in their echo chamber. While any response calling them on their obvious contradiction is ignored, the libtards are successfully owned. Indeed, the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation debacle has been ripe with gaslighting. As I wrote earlier this week for the Daily Banter, we're in the post-contradiction, post-hypocrisy era, the era of the eternal now, so none of what I'm about to say will carry any weight with anyone— other than those of us normals here on Earth One. Here's another example. As soon as Democratic senators on the Judiciary Committee began to launch a strategy to derail the Kavanaugh proceedings, the Republicans immediately began to whine about obstruction. They continue to this day to screech about the awful Dems and their horrendousness without an ounce of self-consciousness regarding what happened to Merrick Garland. While it's true the Democrats don't have the Senate majority necessary to spike the Kavanaugh nomination like the Republicans did to Garland, they're at least playing along. Mitch McConnell, on the other hand, refused to even meet with Garland, who, by the way, was a moderate with a spotless record, unlike a demagogue and conspiracy theorist like Kavanaugh. Indeed, if it hadn't been for Christine Blasey Ford stepping forward, it's possible Kavanaugh would have already been confirmed with Democratic votes, no less but the Trump Republicans would have you believe the Dems are unilaterally destroying a good man's life because something, something, something. As I've been saying since the Trump crisis began, you are not insane. The Garland issue is nothing when compared with the brain liquefying impact of Trump's latest attack on the Democrats. While skulking his way to Marine One the other day, the president stopped on the lawn and spoke with reporters briefly and said, My whole life I've heard you're innocent until proven guilty, but now you're guilty until proven innocent. That is a very, very difficult standard. He continued by saying, I say that it's a very scary time for young men in America when you can be guilty of something that you may not be guilty of. You can be somebody that was perfect your entire life and somebody could accuse you of something. Doesn't necessarily have to be a woman, as everyone says, but someone accuses you of something and you're automatically guilty. But in this realm, you are truly guilty until proven innocent. This is the textbook definition of the post-hypocrisy gaslighting we're talking about here. Trump was propelled into the White House, in part due to a catchphrase that emerged from the 2016 Republican National Convention, and which has become one of Trump's top three or four most popular and abundantly crappy catchphrases. I'm, of course, talking about lock her up. This, duh, is all about Trump and the Red Hats convicting Hillary Clinton in the kangaroo court of the MAGA cult. In American politics, there's no better illustration of guilty until proven innocent. There's no greater example of abandoning due process than these chants heard at every Trump rally since July of 2016. Likewise, there's also Trump's personal jihad against the Central Park Five back in the 1980s, a group of several minority teens who were falsely accused of a brutal rape and murder in New York City. In response to the news of the attack, Trump took out a full-page newspaper ad presuming the guilt of the teens before they were found guilty in court. And worse, Trump insisted that they be executed. But damn those Senate Democrats for believing the word of a sexual assault survivor over the word of a serial liar like Trump or, for that matter, a serial perjurer like Kavanaugh. Besides, the Democrats aren't suggesting Kavanaugh should be put on trial, much less punished by law enforcement for his alleged attack on Dr. Ford. This is simply a matter of character, honesty, and integrity, and following his screaming in the committee room last week, Kavanaugh is lacking in all of the above, especially knowing he's up for a lifetime post on the court. Yet Trump somehow wants his people, the ones chanting lock her up, to believe he's all about due process. Trump and his enablers in the conservative entertainment complex also want their loyalists to believe Kavanaugh is being destroyed because of his obvious fetish for beer. Donald Trump Jr. has been ranting about this, and Glenn Beck's The Blaze just published a story in which they dust off an old video of Barack Obama talking about his drinking and drug usage in his younger years. Shocking revelation, eh? The fact that Obama drank and tried drugs is well-documented in Obama's best-selling book, Dreams from My Father. Also, Obama didn't lie under oath about it, nor did he gang-rape anyone while he was hammered. While I don't think it's a good idea for a surly drunk, or possibly dry drunk, to sit on the Supreme Court, I also don't think it's a good idea for an emotionally unstable man to sit on the court either. But that's not even in the top five problems with Kavanaugh. Again, this isn't about beer. Kavanaugh's self-destruction is all about perjury. Is he lying about what happened that night in July 1982 and the other reported attacks? Is he lying about being blackout drunk a lot? Is he lying about getting into fights while drunk? This is all about lying. This is about deception. This is about a man who clearly lacks the discipline to decide on issues that impact 320 million Americans. And now it's clear, based on his whiny, belligerent attitude that he'll carry his bitterness into the court where it could taint his decision making for the rest of his life. Beer? Jesus, the dumbness is powerful. Because it's important to repeat, you are not insane. Trump and the Red Hats, on the other hand, want you to think that you are. The gaslighting of America is just one of a thousand reasons why Trumpism needs to be humiliated out of existence. A healthy society can't endure under these conditions but we still have the power to pull up before we hit the ground. November 6th will be everything. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Get more of Bob at Salon.com, his
0: Patreon page, and Tuesdays and Thursdays on the Bob Seska Show at realmnetwork.com. Bob will have a fresh show this afternoon. I'll be back with him again on Tuesday. Canada is or was one of the best friends the U.S. could have there for us on 9-11 and the misadventures that followed and in so many other situations. Canada has been a good neighbor and the best customer for things we make here in the U.S. But Emory University business professor Jeff Rosenswig says we've really hurt our relationships with our major ally for a few gallons of milk. President Trump has finally succeeded in negotiating a deal to replace NAFTA, the North American free trade agreement that Trump had called the worst deal maybe ever signed. Trump wanted to level the playing field, he said, requiring U.S.-made cars to use more U.S.-made parts and forcing Canada to lower its tariffs on milk it buys from American dairy farmers. But Professor Rosenzweig says the playing field was already level and that it had been for 25 years since NAFTA was first passed. No trade deal is final, by the way, until Congress says it is, and lawmakers have refused to sign off on any trade deal that left out our number one trade partner, Canada. So Trump tussled with and strong-armed the Canadian Prime Minister for a year until he finally got a deal. Now it just has to be approved by Congress, and by the governments of Canada and Mexico. Trump hopes to use this victory to help Republicans running in next month's election. But quoting that Emory business professor, this changes nothing. It's just a political move. It bears repeating today, the emperor has no clothes. I built what I built myself, said Donald Trump, lying through his teeth. The press ate it up with a spoon from People Magazine to the New York Times, spreading the word over the years about this financial genius named Trump. This perception of his business acumen helped get him elected. But it was daddy's money from the day he was born. Our current president was a millionaire by the age of eight as money given to him by his father began to accumulate. Trump has claimed he got started with a million-dollar loan from his dad, but a New York Times investigation found it was at least $61 million for just one adult loan. Trump said he repaid the loan, but the Times found he did not repay it in full, or even most of it, nor did he pay the interest he claims to have paid. Over his lifetime, Trump reportedly collected from his father what today would be $413 million. The Times didn't get Donald Trump's tax returns, but its investigative journalists did get hold of his father's tax returns, and they tell us a lot. The Times isn't just offering evidence that Trump has lied about his wealth and was able to convince the press, the public, and the IRS that his self-made billionaire story was true when it wasn't. No, the Times is offering evidence that Donald Trump helped his parents avoid paying over a half billion dollars in taxes to the U.S. government as they gifted their children with more than a billion dollars. It's evidence of tax fraud. And while the statute of limitations has run out for any criminal charges related to that, it is not too late to levy civil fines against Trump. And perhaps that is why. The New York Times investigation has now become an investigation by New York state tax officials. The Times, after all, had already gathered more than 100,000 pages of documents on the empire of the president's father, Fred Trump. The Times was also able to substantiate its story through interviews with Fred's former employees and advisers. Quoting a spokesman, the tax department is reviewing the allegations in the New York Times article and is vigorously pursuing all appropriate avenues of investigation. And state crimes are not subject to presidential pardon or presidential self-pardon. New York State's tax department was already investigating the Trump Foundation for possible violations of both state and federal law. And now New York City's Department of Finance is investigating as well. And now there are documents that show Donald Trump is rich, not because of his art of the deal, but because of his dad. Those not under his spell can see all too clearly now, the emperor isn't even wearing pants. It's been two weeks since the U.S. detention camp for migrant children in Tornillo, Texas was supposed to be emptied and closed. Instead, it is still there, and it's expanding quickly. Tents are lined up within yards of the Mexican border filled with children brought in by the busloads. More than 2,000 children live there now playing soccer in the scorching desert sun. The camp opened four months ago at the start of Trump's ill-fated zero-tolerance policy. It grew as the Trump administration ripped children from their migrant parents so they could be detained separately. The family separations finally ended on June 20th, but the camp is still there, and its growth has been documented by aerial photography. The Trump administration then made a bad situation worse by arresting people who had come forward to care for the children because those people were undocumented. Internal Homeland Security documents show that more than $260 million in national security funds have now been diverted to housing the kids that were taken from their parents. But wait, there's more. Over the past few weeks, in the middle of the night, migrant children have been awakened by their U.S. government captors and moved on cross-country buses to that tent city in that Texas desert. Trump's immigration process, no longer welcome on the airlines, has turned to interstate buses to transport the kids from places including Kansas and New York. Undocumented children had previously been housed in foster homes or slept two to three to a room in a shelter. They got schooling and they got to see the lawyers that had come to help them. Now they're just adjusting to life in those tents in the desert. No school, no immigration lawyers. The kids are being treated exactly as the Department of Health and Human Services requires and nothing more. The Trump administration is looking for places to put the 13,000 children it now possesses, which is five times as many kids as were in U.S. custody last year. Five times as many kids. The number of migrant children has not increased. There haven't been more coming over the border. Trump's immigration policies have multiplied the number of being detained. On average, the children are being held twice as long as they had been in the past. The shelters were 90% full. So hi-ho, it's off to Tent City, they go, where there aren't as many protections for the children as there were in the shelters. Our broken immigration system is now more broken, and children are paying the price. And an update on last week's story about ICE agents arresting people who'd come forward to help house some of those children, claiming 80% of those volunteers had criminal records. They don't. Immigration officials later confirmed that 7 out of 10 of those arrested in that purge of volunteers did not have criminal records. The Trump administration has started denying visas to the same-sex partners of foreign diplomats in this country unless they get married by the end of the year. Otherwise, the partner or the couple have to leave the U.S. because they're gay and not legally married to each other. That goes for diplomats at embassies in the U.S. and for diplomats working at the United Nations in New York. And unfortunately, for some of these foreign same sex couples to get married is illegal in their home countries. Answering charges of discrimination, the Trump administration argues its rules are the same for opposite sex couples. A record number of transgendered people were murdered in the U.S. last year 28. And with 21 killed so far this year, we're on track to at least match last year's number. Nikki Enriquez of Laredo, Texas, was the 21st victim of 2018. Transgender women are the most frequent targets, and 86% of the victims were transgender women of color, specifically black, Hispanic, and Native American. Although the murders are mostly blamed on transphobia, they have not been investigated as hate crimes. Four members of a militant white supremacist group have been arrested for violating federal laws that pertain to rioting. These California men were part of the Unite the Right rally that turned violent last year in Charlottesville, Virginia. You can make some dandy swastikas with a little black spray paint and some white athletic tape, and the feds have receipts to prove the four men were in Charlottesville buying those things at the time of the disturbances. The men also bought a folding tactical knife while in town. Video places the men at the torch-lit rally that turned violent. Video shows at least one of them committing a violent act. On Facebook, he said he'd really hit more like five people. The feds call the four men career rioters traveling cross-country to kick some ass. They now face federal felony charges for the violence in Charlottesville. Guns on the Loose Over the weekend, two men drove a U-Haul van to the UPS warehouse in Memphis, Tennessee, broke in, and stole hundreds of guns. The ATF is offering a $5,000 reward for information leading to arrests and convictions. They're also looking at the possibility it was an inside job. These 400 guns were at UPS waiting to be shipped to retailers in various cities around the country. Now they're on the loose. One city has started its school year preparing as if for war. Over the summer in Bismarck, North Dakota, the police department and the school board agreed to split the cost of some AR-15s, safes to keep them in, and of course, bleeding control kits. The Brownell Company in Iowa heard about this, and it just happens to distribute AR-15s, so it generously donated nine of them to the people of Bismarck. The AR-15s will be kept in safes in each school to be accessed by the police officers who also carry handguns in Bismarck schools as the school's resource officers. The Brownell Company's donation saved the city $9,000, which it says it will use to buy more bleeding control kits. Now back to planning homecoming. Zuckerberg's monster, Marty Balin and Peggy Sue, a colorful warning about Viagra and a horse runs into a bar in the third and final segment up next. Even though we know how important it is to have life insurance, a third of us don't have it, mainly because it's boring, and complicated. How do you shop for the best deal on the best policy for you? Where do you start? Who do you trust? Do your own research? Sounds risky and still boring, unless, unless you go to PolicyGenius.com. Even if you don't know jack about insurance, PolicyGenius.com guides you to the policy that's right for you, and in about two minutes, PolicyGenius.com does the work for you by comparing quotes from all the top companies. You get peace of mind knowing that over 4 million people have used PolicyGenius, not just for life insurance, but home, auto, disability, and more. Stop putting off having the life insurance you know you need. Take two minutes right now to make the right decision for you and your family. PolicyGenius.com, the easy way to compare and buy life insurance. Congress had already told Facebook that it had better get the monster it's created under control, or Congress would see to it. Facebook had already accidentally allowed former client Cambridge Analytica to access private info on as many as 87 million users and had allowed disinformation campaigns that changed elections and got people killed. So you can imagine the panic at Facebook a week ago when it learned it had been hacked, along with the personal information of nearly 50 million users. The hackers found a flaw in Facebook's computer code that allowed administrative access to those user accounts. By the end of the week, Facebook was telling the public the hack had been discovered and that the security hole had been patched and it signed out 90 million users as part of its security changes, forcing persistent Facebookers to log on again. But this is far from over. Law enforcement is now investigating and still just getting started. Cyber sleuths are trying to find out if the hackers got into any of the thousands of apps and websites that allow users to sign in with their Facebook info. Facebook now says no third-party apps were accessed, just the 50 million accounts. The hackers got in using bugs in the view as feature. That's a way for Facebookers to see what information about them can be seen by other people and by whom. Ironically, it was intended as a security feature to help users control their privacy. Instead, it was a gateway for hackers. We also learned this week that Facebook has been giving to advertisers the data about you that doesn't appear on your page, but is information you gave to Facebook to verify your account. Facebook now finds itself trying to defend its creation from the angry townsfolk with torches and pitchforks. On Sunday, California's Governor Brown did something else to irritate the Trump administration. He signed a bill containing the strictest net neutrality protections in the country, a roadmap for other states to follow, and other states have shown interest, including New York and New Mexico, to name two. Within hours of Brown's signature on that net neutrality law, the Trump administration announced it would sue California for its attempt to, quote, subvert the federal government's deregulatory approach. To Trump's Justice Department, California is just another state, not just the biggest economy in the U.S. and the fifth biggest economy in the world. It's now a battle over a state's right to establish policy within its own borders. The Trump administration says California's attempt at net neutrality will drive up prices for everyone, echoing the concerns of telecommunications giants at and and Verizon and Comcast and T-Mobile, Sprint, Cox, Frontier, and CenturyLink. And now all of them are suing California, too. Our most powerful state versus an army of Goliath corporations and a president who has the corporation's backs. Get a good seat. The flu killed 80,000 people last year, the most people in over 40 years. And this year's influenza virus is expected to be worse than last year's and predicted to arrive sooner. The Surgeon General wants everyone over the age of six months to get vaccinated but they won't. Fewer than 50 percent of us get the shots to protect ourselves from the majority who do not. College students are the worst about this, despite the high risk and being exposed to so many people from so many places. That's why campuses are where the virus spreads the fastest and farthest. More than a third of those who avoid vaccinations say they're healthy and they don't need it. Nearly a third think the vaccine doesn't work. Despite their higher education six in ten college students believe the flu shot will give them the flu which is not true and nearly a third say they don't like needles for this those who avoid the shots are willing to make other people sick and some of those people may be among the 80,000 who died this year we are drawn to addiction apparently Jewel e-cigarettes have become the king of the e-cig industry, owning a third of the market now. Jewel sales are up over the past year by 641%. Kids love them, and they do get hold of them by the millions. And it's worth mentioning that Jewel is small enough to hide, looks like a USB drive, and packs the most nicotine of any e-cigarette in the U.S., With a weak response so far the government is not only not winning its war on nicotine it's getting pummeled. Consumer alert for the men who take Viagra. It may permanently alter your ability to see colors correctly. Some Viagra users have experienced blue vision in which the user seems to be looking at the world through a pale blue lens. A new study by Mount Sinai found that using too much Viagra using large doses can cause color perception to be permanently altered. One man lost his true colors after taking more than the recommended 50 milligram dose that he had purchased through a website. A Viagra overdose can damage the cones of the retina the parts of our eyes that see color. Strawberries, apples, onions, and cucumbers. Different as they are from each other, they all have one thing in common, Ficetin. That's a chemical researchers say slowed the aging process in mice. Early studies indicate fiscitin may also guard against Alzheimer's and against stroke. The best way to get fiscitin is is to ingest it naturally by eating strawberries, apples, onions, and cucumbers. It seemed to work for the mice. Real-life comedy won out over the animated kind in this week's battle for the box office bonanza. Kevin Hart and Tiffany Haddish opened their movie Night School and raked in $28 million. Warner Brothers' Smallfoot was second with $23 million. The house with a clock in its walls opened big last week but fell dramatically this week, meaning the word of mouth is not good clock was a distant third this week still in the top 10 after seven weeks crazy rich asians now has made more than 166 million dollars just in the u.s and canada for all the movies previews reviews theaters showtimes and tickets please click through the fandango link at buzzburbank.com passings and passages first that of jefferson airplane and starship co-founder marty Balin real name Martin Gerald Buchwald, Marty Balin created the airplane in the mid-1960s along with Paul Kantner and Grace Slick. Marty Balin was 76. Jeff Emmerich was 15 years old when he started working at EMI Records as an assistant engineer. By 1963, Jeff was a full-fledged audio engineer mixing music for the Beatles, He did it so well, he produced the much-admired Revolver album and Sgt. Peppers and Abbey Road, and later for Paul McCartney's solo work. Jeff Emmerich, the Beatles engineer, has died from a heart attack at age 72. And it may have been rock pioneer Buddy Holly who sang about Peggy Sue, but she married the drummer in Holly's band, The Crickets. The song was originally called Cindy Lou after Holly's niece, but drummer Jerry Allison had something to say about that after meeting Peggy Sue Guerin. Peggy Sue Guerin-Rackham died this week. She passed at 78 after a long and popular life on 45s. With trade deals in the news, it's only right we acknowledge the historic deal just struck between Canada and the island nation of Jamaica. The island nation was already known for its high-quality marijuana, which has improved over the three years since the laws were relaxed there, and it's now ready for export. Canada, as its full legalization approaches, is ready to import. Quoting Jamaica's Minister of Industry, Commerce, Agriculture, and Fisheries, the finest cannabis is to be found in Jamaica. Fort Collins, Colorado, 911, what's your emergency? Hi. Hi. Said the boy who had placed the call. This isn't an emergency, he said, but I'm 10 years old and I'm working on my math homework right now, and I can't figure out what 71 divided by 3,052 is. The boy and his fellow citizens have since been reminded that 911 is only for real emergencies, not for help with your homework. Police felt they had to say that since the 911 dispatcher, using a calculator, gave the boy the correct answer. Uh, 42.9 if you care but didn't already know but the kids books finally arrived Vera Walker of Orlando Florida ordered a set of Dr. Seuss books for a little granddaughter and they've now arrived 20 years late the little granddaughter is now 24 years old but the granddaughter can still be grateful for the gift since she now has a little boy who's just about five So, horse runs into a bar. In Chantilly, France, a few customers in a gambling bar ran for safety as a horse came charging through the place, which just happens to be a gambling bar near a racetrack. We'll take the filly to show. Two U.S. Army soldiers stationed at Joint Base Elmendorf-Richardson near Anchorage, Alaska, went bear hunting. It didn't go well for them, or the bear, 28-year-old William McCormick shot the bear while it was on top of a ridge. William was standing below the 200-pound bear, which landed on top of him along with some miscellaneous rocks. William will be all right, but he's pretty banged up. The 19-year-old soldier with him did not shoot the bear and was not injured. You can tell autumn is coming. The squirrels in Central Park today were being counted. The annual squirrel census is underway. With the help of squirrel counting volunteers, a group of researchers is counting the eastern greys in New York Central Park. The researchers plan to create an interactive map of where the squirrels live, work, and play, and the routes they take to get from one place to another. Quoting the founder of the squirrel census, you will see the park through the eyes of the squirrel. And finally, oh, what that kangaroo must have seen while it ran or hopped from authorities in Jupiter, Florida, after escaping from its home at Jupiter Farm Sanctuary. A week later, Stormy is back in custody. Stormy, the kangaroo's owner, had been hit with five citations from state wildlife officials who say they're trying to figure out how the kangaroo escaped. Until we hear the results of that investigation, let's go with... It hopped out? I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and supporting my sponsors at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and Comment. Buzz 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 buzz
1: buzz buzz by the Realm Network.